This week on A Lively Experiment, more twists and turns with Speaker Mattiello and what has become a controversial audit. And Providence finally gets a new school superintendent. A Lively Experiment is generously underwritten by... For more than 30 years, A Lively Experiment has provided insight and analysis of important political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm John Hazen White, Jr., and I'm proud to support this great program and Rhode Island PBS. Joining us today, Target 12 investigative reporter Tim White, Leanne Senek, National Committee woman for the Rhode Island Republican Party, and Bill Lynch, former chairman of the Rhode Island Democratic Party. Hello, everyone, and welcome. I'm Jim Hummel. It is good to have you with us. Speaker Nick Mattiello has been on the defensive since a story broke earlier this month about an audit he ordered of the Rhode Island Convention Center Authority's books. The heat has been turned up this week featuring dumpster dives, black mold, lawsuits, and a state police investigation at the State House. In other words, just another week at the Rhode Island State House. <laughs> uh, Tim, we should mention this was your story uh, that you broke, and I, I don't know if you envisioned all of this. Usually you shake the tree and more comes out. The latest that you reported, we're taping on a Thursday, uh, you reported later on Wednesday that the state police have actually gone into gear talking to people. Right, the Rhode Island Convention Center, after all of this uh, hit the fan, had reached out to the state police colonel, James Mannion asked for them to investigate the motive behind the audit by Speaker Mattiello. We should note that Speaker Mattiello has denied that the motivation for him was punitive against a personnel investigation at the convention center involving one of his friends. Uh, it, but we now know, based on our reporting from yesterday, that the state police have decided to take up that investigation requested by the convention center. Um, they have interviewed at least uh, two people, uh, including the head of the quasi-public agency, the Ro Rhode Island Convention Center Authority, Jim McCarville, and a board member, Paul McDonald, from the convention center. Uh, and he, as we reported, was uh, approached by Speaker Mattiello, or he told state police he was approached by Speaker Mattiello to um, ask questions about this personnel investigation, and our understanding that conversation was pretty heated. He's been on that board for almost 30 years. 1991, I yeah. believe, he's been on that board, so he's uh, been there for a long time. He's seen a lot of things, but uh, I can tell you, just interviewing different people around the convention center, the audit that they were hit with right before Christmas, two days before Christmas, uh, stunned them all. That was a, a, a big shock. Yeah, we'll get back to some more of the specifics. The optics, as you look at this, Leanne? Well, the optics, I mean, I think the whole thing really stinks worse than the dumpster the state police had to dive into to look for evidence against this. Um, but one of the things I don't want us to lose sight of is this, that we've been calling for an audit for the convention center, so I do think it's a good thing that the convention center should be audited. There's a lot of taxpayer dollars at stake there, and we'd like to know the, the trail of what's happening there. So as much as we want to make sure the process is followed, we don't want to also lose the ability to audit them. That's one of the ironies is that the Republicans have been calling for this for years. And I, a lot of people are saying, hey, well, the Republicans are getting what they want now. We'll talk about Blake Philippi in a moment. What are your thoughts I on hope this? so. Mr. Lynch? <laughs> <laughs> but it's ridiculous, in my opinion. It's pure politics. Um, you know, and Leanne, I'm glad, you know, has admitted it. The Republicans have been calling for and saying we should have an audit of the convention center for years. Uh, the speaker came into some information in, which had nothing to do with, with the issues that are being raised as a smokescreen with respect to the personnel issues over there. 
and said, well, let's have an audit. Do you know, know what those state, issues are? The state, I don't, but the state, you know, the state taxpayers are on the hook for over $28 million a year at the convention center. And most people I see say, absolutely, why not have an, well, uh, not only an audit, but a performance audit, and let's see what's going but on But he's been there. speaker for how many years now? Why, I mean, I'm not sure what the information is. This is the big I think we're gonna, I think we're going to find out, because I believe that there will be an audit. Why um, were we doing this when. like two, three, four years ago? Well, because sometimes you find out information, and once you find it out, you proceed to act on it. It happens all the time, and I don't think this was, this was uh, at all unusual in that regard. And I think that, that the, you know, the state police, you know, I, I love Tim's reporting, but the state police get a letter asking that they look into something. They're not going to ignore it and say, we're not going to do anything. So they're talking to people. That's their job. I, I think, think it's going right. to be I th a waste I, time. He makes a fair point. I would say, though, the last time you had carpeting torn out of your house, the state police didn't show up to preserve uh, potential evidence there. Um, I think it's the state police do they get might, a, Maybe they should have. Uh, maybe they should have known Jim, yeah. Uh, but the uh, state police do get a lot of letters. Uh, state police often get requests for investigations. They don't take them all up. Um, and they did on this one. You know, we had a camera at the state house when the state police showed up. We're not going to do a story because they're overhauling the offices of the JCLS. Right. We filed a report because the state police arrived and it was an indication that they're looking into it. We have no idea where that's going to lead and, and we shouldn't uh, speculate on that in any way. But it, it is telling and significant that they are checking it out. But I, lo I love how the speaker said he was concerned. He really felt badly because the troopers, you know, I hope they weren't exposed to the black mold. And he said, you know, this was a false tip. Maybe we should investigate who gave the tip. And that's the old let's find out who the rat routine is, right? Yeah. I, the whole thing, the timing is specious at best on a lot of this stuff. So when we're talking about the when and why, it will be interesting to find that out exactly what spurred the audit at this point in time. And I think that's part of the story here. But I think also the idea that this is just one scandal in a long line of many hitting the Speaker's office and the Democratic caucus, Those some of those members are now stepping up and requesting um, a meeting in a caucus to discuss the leadership ability of the speaker going forward. And I think that's another part of the story that we really need to look at, the political aspect of it and how that's going to play out for the people in that caucus if they're going to stay in support of his leadership role. Because it's not just about ca calling the audit and the need to do that, but it's the way that it was done without the authority of the JCLS. And the, the best part, the upside of all of this, is it's putting a spotlight on that particular office because there's a lot of money involved there and a budget that there's no oversight for, that you have one person in control of this, this budget and they're not putting the checks and balances in there that should be there for those taxpayer dollars. So I've said this for years on this program. I never worry about what the Republican Party tells me that I should do with the Democratic Party or the Democratic caucus. <laughs> and I don't tell them what they should do. But this, this notion that there's uh, a lack of support for the speaker because these five dissidents have gotten together and, and wrote that letter is ridiculous. The speaker has firm support in the House and these five people that we're referring to, they've never supported the speaker ever on anything. One of them was censored publicly by the speaker because he voted for one of the other five who wasn't even present in the House chambers when they were taking a vote one day and he's, and he's had a uh, an axe to grind with the speaker ever since. So there's these, these five people have never supported the speaker. They presumably never will. And this notion that somehow they have any authority or support in the House is, is I can tell you from, from the Democratic side, it's absolutely ridiculous. It just doesn't exist. You, you know, um, 
the speaker's weathered a lot of storms. Heavy is a head that wears the crown. You always have a lot of incoming when you're at the top there, and certainly he, he has for a while. Um, the interesting thing that we're watching right now is he's also getting it from the other chamber, right? The, the Senate has now uh, proposed a bill that wants to level the playing field on the JCLS. We don't have to get into the weeds on that, but basically it's controlled by the House with three seats. The Senate only gets two. Now you have a bill that makes it, wants to make it even three and three. I think uh, no matter how this plays out, the timing isn't great for the speaker because he's trying to get off on the right foot with his initiatives, the policies he wants to put forward at the beginning of a session, and he has this, uh, he has this going on when he's trying to negotiate with the other chamber. The timing isn't great. So uh, uh, House Minority Leader Blake Flynn <clears throat> goes to court, and I think put the speaker a little bit back on his heels because he was a little bit on the defensive this week. I wonder what your thought is. I mean, you could say, look, this is the way the JCLS <clears throat> has been run for years. I know the minority leaders have been upset by that. I wonder if that gets any traction because he's keeping the court suit. Well, it has, right? it has uh, shined a light on a very obscure uh, you know, uh, the JCLS, a very obscure committee that, by the way, controls $48 million. A lot of jobs. A lot of jobs, the state house budget uh, that doesn't get a lot of attention. The House Speaker, we should note, is the chairman of the JCLS. So, look, he's pulling the strings there. His uh, longtime friend of his, a former state rep, Frank Montanaro, is he, uh, he runs the JCLS. So the power, again, is, is into the House. I think whatever happens with the, the Filippi lawsuit and, and the Republicans and all that, it is shining a light uh, for the public to understand, you know, peel back the curtain a little bit more about how the state house operates. What about that argument that just that it's always been done this way? I mean, I know legally that'll be get all worked out in court, but I mean, do you give Speaker Mattiello the benefit of the doubt to say, well, I really did, I didn't think I needed to run it by the JCLS on this audit because really kind of this is the way we've operated. Does that hold up? Well, I, I think that's part of it, but I think the other part of it is, you know, if, if Donald Trump were here, he'd be referring to Blake Filippi as a as Blake the fake. I mean, when, when Filippi wanted a, a casino study done, uh, he never requested a meeting of the JCLS or any vote, and he had no problem with it. And all of a sudden, uh, when there's going to be an issue about the audit, he initially was on board with the audit and agreed to have a meeting of the JCLS. He was presented with a letter to sign saying, let's meet and vote on having this audit. And it was only at that point that he got indignant and said, no, why? Because it's no secret that Blake has, has uh, thoughts of running for higher office, presumably governor. And he got together with Brandon Bell, whose fingerprints are all over the lawsuit. Your favorite guy. And he, well, I like Brandon, but I mean, his goal in life is, and I've said this before, he's like Don Quixote tilting at windmills. His goal in life is to, is to see Nick Mattiello defeated. That, that, that's, he's obsessed with it. And, and Blake suddenly went from being uh, acquiescing to a meeting and voting to saying absolutely not and I'm gonna file a lawsuit with Brandon Bell so this was all choreographed uh, it's a political stunt it's nothing more than that nothing will come of it in my opinion but it got Filippi the kind of uh, I guess publicity that he wanted. The law is pretty clear though Jim just real quick uh, I would say the statute says specifically uh, a performance audit which is the audit that Speaker Mattiello ordered requires a quote majority vote of the JCLS it's yeah, I don't, think this, I, don't, I don't think I don't think no, I don't dispute that. I don't think anybody disputes that. I think part of what you're saying is correct that in the past it was assumed that it would be okay, and there have been actions taken where there wasn't a formal meeting and a formal vote. I think that that's well, something they should revisit. Well, there were also revisit. things approved for the that the minority would go along with that. Oh yeah, it's no big deal. We don't need right. to meet, Leah. Right. Well, I think the the vote 
came after the audit had already been ordered. So I think that was part of like the timing, the whole timeline of this. Um, it, it, again, is makes it questionable. So they, they tried to go back and say that, yeah, we're going to say that we had this vote after we've already done the audit, so already ordered the audit. So I think that's part of it. But I think Blake has shown tremendous leadership in bringing this attention to light, and I think it is an area that we do need to shine a light on. There is taxpayer dollars. This budget for the state house is huge. It's a lot of money, and we need to know what the accountability is for that. So if we're going to audit the convention center, let's audit the JCLS. Let's let's audit everybody. <laughs> it's a lot of audits. <laughs> it's uh, a lot of audits. But Bill, that was... but again, it, it goes back to that accountability issue, and we have people that are elected office and they're accountable to the people who voted and put them into that office. They're, they're accountable to the people of the state of Rhode Island who are paying their salaries and that's where this issue is going to gain traction because it's going to bring that into the light and people are going to be stunned to find out how much money is at stake and, and how much money they have uh, autonomy over to, to a discretion to use. Bill, that was very masterful using Donald Trump to say something that you wanted to say, Blake the Flake. The, the fake, not the flake. <laughs> it is very it, masterful. It is what it is. I mean, we, look at Blake's not the first elected official at the state house to want to run for higher office, and and he's attempting to raise his perception in the state in order to do that. He's got now Brandon Bell joined with him in trying to do that, and and uh, Tim is right. The speaker is a big target. Uh, and, and, and and sometimes an easy target, and it's political. But, I mean, it shouldn't be any surprise to anybody. All right, folks, the other big news this week that got somewhat lost, but maybe not, a uh, new school superintendent in Providence. Um, Harrison Perry comes uh, from uh, Florida, but he's been uh, a variety of places. He's been in Houston. He's been in <laughs> North Carolina. And I was reading uh, Linda Borg's article in the journal. Tim, you and I were talking about this earlier. 11 superintendents in the last 20 years. So we talked a lot over the summer about how we need it, and I wonder what your thoughts are about the challenges he faces uh, coming into this system. Well, I think, first of all, I wish him the best of luck because our children's futures are at stake, so we want to see him succeed. The challenges, especially unique to Rhode Island, is we have this kind of colloquialism. We have a lot of little fiefdoms, and a lot of people have... Um, amounts of power that they want to hold on to. So I think that's going to be a problem for anyone coming in to kind of break that up and butt heads with those and to get those people to do some consensus building and get everyone on board to agree how we're going to move forward with the Providence um, school system to benefit children. So I, I think that's one of the challenges. And also the challenges that we face, the funding formulas, the students coming in um, who do not speak English, that makes it a challenge. I think we've got some good ideas to mitigate those circumstances, but I think it's going to take everyone working together, and that's something that Rhode Island hasn't been successful at, getting everyone on board and building a consensus to move forward. The challenges for Providence aren't unique to uh, Providence, and urban uh, school districts are, have a tough time. Providence has uh, particularly bad numbers, 12% proficiency in math, 17% uh, I believe in English, but what I'm looking at is uh, a, a challenge that's closer on the horizon, and that is the end of the teacher's contract in Providence. That expires on August 31st. Um, really, it is going to be the state education commissioner, um, Angelica Green, um, that is going to be uh, spearheading the, the entire negotiation with the teachers' union there. But whatever comes out of that collective bargaining is going to have a profound impact on what the new superintendent can do. Uh, everything in the uh, Providence teacher contract, including uh, how long the school days are, uh, how many professional development days there are, the size of the classrooms, that's all baked into that cake. And I think the administration would argue that doesn't give them a lot of flexibility. So uh, we should all be watching very closely what comes 
out at the end of that negotiation process. And it's a different dynamic, too, because now you have state control. Now, I don't know, the relationship between the superintendent and the mayors has really depended on the mayor, going back to Cianci and I'm sure Angel Tavares and, and Jorge Alorza now, but I'm wondering, there's ultimately the state that kind of sort of Damocles is there. You wonder how much power he's going to have. It, once that gets all worked out, your issues. Um, yeah, you know, I, I haven't met him yet, but he's certainly uh, on paper, and what I've heard uh, certainly is eminently qualified. It's certainly a challenge, but I'm sure he knew that. Um, on, and with the new superintendent uh, on board, I think the biggest thing, and it dovetails with what Tim is saying, is that for the first time, whether we like it or not, that devastating report, I think, woke people up uh, in a way that I haven't seen in my adult life with respect to the status of our educational system in Providence. And at least at this point, it seems like there is a real momentum and a commitment to working together and putting aside some of the smaller individual differences that in the past have proven to be just an, an impediment to making any significant substantial changes. So I think if we continue down that path, and this gentleman seems to be, as best I can tell, somebody who's equipped to do that with the new superintendent and, and I think obviously with the state, you know, basically setting an almost an ultimatum at this point saying that this has to be done. The problem that everybody's wrestling with, and there's no easy answer, is that it's not something that's going to be fixed overnight. Um, that's the problem. And you've got these children who are in the school system now who are going to continue to move through the system. And, and I think we need to do the best we can for them, knowing that we're not going to have a perfect school system and a perfect fix in Providence in the next week or the next month. You also wonder... <clears throat> Um, this guy looks like kind of a Bedouin. And these guys, like, they move from here to here to here. And what you said, you got to be here for the long run. And he says, I'll be here as long as it takes. But is he going to be here five, six, seven, eight years? And that's, that's a crystal ball question. But sometimes these guys are brought in to kind of put out the brush fire and turn things around. I think it's so deep-seated here that this may not be, a, like, a system that he's been to before where there might be a quick turnaround. I don't know. It's just speculation on my part. Well, it's but. also a totally different structure than we've seen in uh, Rhode Island so far, or I should say with a state Providence, takeover. With a state takeover yeah. in the dynamic there, we're going into new territory. Central Falls might have paved a little bit of ground there, but that was more of an economics. This is really all in uh, from the state, and and you can even see from uh, when the superintendent was announced, Mayor Jorge Alorza wasn't present at the, that announcement. Now we should point out uh, it's, they say there was a communications mix-up that he wasn't invited. Whatever, but I, I do think you're seeing more of a hands-off approach from the mayor that could be, uh, you know, as he looks ahead to 2022, a possible gubernatorial run, if he'd rather kind of get out of the Providence Public School, you know, whatever that might uh, hang over him. But this is going to be really... Uh, uh, fascinating to watch a different dynamic d between the state and the city. And there's some people who have said that all of the air has been sucked out of the room by Providence. And, you know, uh, Commissioner Infante Green came here, you know, to address issues statewide. Now she can get back to her job, but I wonder whether she's really going to be able to. How much is going to be still focusing on Providence? Because we've got issues out in the suburbs, too. Yes, there are issues all across the state, and I think a lot of them can be addressed by opening those lines of communication so that we're looking at people being able to move outside of their zip codes. And that's one thing that this new superintendent did mention, that we don't want students trapped by their zip code. So I think that's one of the things we really have to look at. Um, but we need to concentrate on the statewide, but we're talking about a funding formula, being able to move students with the money. Um, all those things are going to come into play. And I think, again, Tim made a very good point with the union contract. And the unions are very strong in this state, and that's going to um, tie, hold 
hold a little bit back on what people can actually do because we have to be in line with those contracts that are made as well. All right. The other story that's uh, gotten a lot of headlines, although it's been kind of been put to the, the back burner relatively, you've been a busy boy with the Veterans Home yes. the last couple of months. And, you know, this is one of these stories, we've seen this, that it's a relatively small amount of money, but you think about the outcry with, okay, you can't have the sandwiches or the PT. Now, that's that's a significant thing, taking PT away, or now the governor's proposal is to move to 100%. For a $3 million institution, it grabs so much of the headlines, and you wonder if she has a little bit of buyer's regret on that. They've got to do something out there, but is that the way to go about it? Well, I think the the proposal that the governor has in the budget to, and you alluded to it, right now the veterans at the home pay 80% of their entire income, so that include their pension, everything. Social Security goes to the home. And that's the deal. Going in, they know. That's the deal, they know, and, uh, and they get a $150 monthly allowance. Uh, her budget proposal calls for 100% of their income to close uh, some of the budget deficits there. And, and they, they will argue you get more in return, you get an increase of $300. That is going nowhere uh, from where it stands right now as we tape this program. We, we've interviewed Speaker Mattiello. Um, he, he knows the optics of, of how that is and how that will look and reaching into the, you know, the perception will be reaching into the veterans' uh, pocket. Uh, that is going to be ripped from the budget faster than you can even imagine, I think, at, at, at this point. I was a little surprised that's the approach that the Raimondo administration took, just knowing how it might look. It might look good on paper fiscally, but the optics outside the budget room, that's a tough one. And the speaker will figure <clears throat> out the, the money to be able to get from somewhere else. Yeah, I, I have to agree with Tim. I, I don't think that that proposal uh, is going to come to fruition. You know, the, the governor has submitted her budget, and, it, you know, as we always do year after year, and we talk about it, you know, here on the program, and then the House and the Senate get that budget and then they move forward and, and sort of make their proposed modifications and changes and that process has started. I think Tim is right, the veterans uh, issue is one that seems to be a non-starter pretty much right from the beginning. But that process will continue through June as it always does and then hopefully we'll come up with a budget that makes sense for people. It'll be some of what the governor wants, it'll be some of what the House uh, priorities are and some of what the Senate priorities are. Well, I did attend the veterans rally at the state house um, earlier this week, and the the veterans who were there were members of the disabled American veterans and their supporters. And I think that it, it's a shame that these people had to try to come together and fight for their own dignity and the things that they should be receiving um, after fighting for our country. So I, I think that this was just a bad optic, and it was just not the right choice to make for the governor to try and go down this road. Um, one of the gentlemen who was there got up and spoke about, you know, you think like it's a small issue with not getting a sandwich for your family when you remember when you're there, but you're talking about the wife of um, people who served their country and the sacrifices that they made, um, the, the kids who didn't have their parents at their baseball game because they were serving in our military, uh, a sandwich is a small thing to give them so it's kind of a, a stupid place to draw a line in the sand over yeah, um, when we're thing. looking at a 10 billion dollar budget this is you know small the only thing i will say is that i think you know it has a good thing i think may come out of this is that <clears throat> people now will take a look at the veterans home you know we spent a lot of money and, yeah. and made some really nice improvements it's a down beautiful there place to the, physically to yes. the premises and now maybe people will take a look at it as part of the budget process to say what you know can we improve what we're doing down there can we do things differently there's nothing wrong with that kind of discussion and I think in an unfortunate way this has sort of uh, been the incentive now that that will happen okay. but that proposal I don't think is gonna fly okay let's go to outrageous Tim let's begin with you 
Uh, can I do a kudo? You can do a kudo. I know it's. Weird I will give for you me. a dispensation. That's okay. Uh, it's like me doing a nice story. Uh, and Go I ahead. do this. I do this not as a you know a reporter, uh, but I do this as a parent to kids in in public schools. I'm glad lawmakers are taking a look at the field trip policy that the Department of Education had enacted a few years ago. I think under Commissioner Wagner, and I do think it was with good intentions. The idea was make sure. If a school's going on a field trip, everybody can be included. So they didn't want moms and dads to pay for the field trips. The schools have to do that. Well, what happened was uh, field trips are really now few and far between. Uh, They're getting canceled because uh, the schools can't pay for them. Uh, You know, we already know how uh, tight the budgets are. Um, And I think, I like to think that most communities... They made sure that all kids could go to them anyway. They figured uh, they out They figured way. it out. If it yeah. was the PTO, if it was something else. So now that th- this very top-down squashing uh, policy has had a negative effect, and I'm glad lawmakers are going to revisit it. Good. Bill, what do you have? I'm going to bring up the impeachment, and, and we could do a whole show on the impeachment, but I think the outrage is that the Senate appears to be taking the path, although it's not definite yet, that they're not going to allow witnesses for the first time in the country's history to testify at the Trump impeachment trial in the Senate. And uh, I think across the country, the last I saw was 75 percent or more people find that to be completely outrageous, that this is supposed to be a fair process. We, I think, know what the outcome is going to be, but you would at least think that these senators, particularly the Republican senators, would, would at least make it look fair to people. And how you can have a trial, I was saying to Tim off the air, I'm going to Superior Court from here on a criminal matter after the show, and now I think I'm going to go into the judge and, and tell the judge that I think the state should have to prove their case without any testimony or any witnesses. So that'll go over well. Yeah, so, but I mean, that's basically what's happening with respect to the impeachment. And, and whether it's Ambassador Bolton, who clearly has information that's pertinent and relevant to what they're doing, I think that the result may not change, but I think the Republicans are going re- to regret not having any witnesses because that's something the average person in Rhode Island and across the country can understand that that's not a fair process. Leanne, you can respond to that or offer your own outrage or kudo, whatever well, you would like. I'd like to just respond to, to that briefly, but I have a kudos and an sure. outrage. If no, that's you can't okay. do both. You have to pick. <laughs> Get to it. Let's move. Well, I think that you know the whole process has been um, not fair in the, the House side, and I think that what they're proving in the Senate is that they don't have the evidence necessary to move forward. And I don't think a lot of people in the country are ready to to move forward with this. They want this over with. We're done with this now. Let's move on. Because um, in the meantime, we're getting things done in the country. Um, we just signed the USMCA, uh, the first tri- China phase of the trade deal. All of those things are more important than than this dog and pony show that's going on right now. But my my kudos is to um, the volunteers that are helping. It's our ballot access process right now. I think a lot of people aren't familiar with that, that all of the presidential candidates need to get 1,000 signatures to get on the ballot. And we have a great group of volunteers that are helping with the presidential. And these are your neighbors and friends in Rhode Island. They're people who are volunteering their time. They're not paid operatives coming in from outside our state to get these signatures. And I, I, I have a great deal of respect for them and a great amount of gratitude for what they're doing. And we had a... a disabled person in a wheelchair that actually took two buses to come down to Warwick to sign the papers to get President Trump on the ballot. And that's that's powerful. This is the kind of support that this president does have in the state, and I think we need to highlight that. Did you have an outrage? I do have an outrage. You've got 30 seconds. I've got 30 seconds. It's it's the CNN interview um, with Don Lemon where they actually 
mocked voters, the supporters of the president, calling them credulous um, boomer rubes, and they laughed, um, made fun of accents, and just it, it was just a terrible mockery of the American voter, and it's going to be their deplorable not moment. Not Trump yeah. has ever mocked anybody, right? <laughs> no, but he's not mocking the Disabled voters. These, these, these are reporters, women. and I think it does a disservice to, to the media to see that happening there. I think Walter Cronkite must be rolling over in his grave seeing this happening, where, where we have actual people who are supposed to be reporters being unbiased reporting the news, laughing and mocking voters and supporters of a United States president. Okay. Well, this I, from a president who mocks and makes fun of and insults reporters on a daily basis. All right. Talks it, about that will news. be our next voters. show. He's uh, attacking the voters. This is their deplorables moment. All right, folks. That is all the time we have. Thank you for joining us. Tim, good to see you again. Thank and you. Leanne and Bill, maybe we will carry this out in the parking lot. <laughs> folks, never a dull moment. Come back here next week. You never know what's going to happen between now and next week, but we'll have it covered as a lively experiment continues. Have a great weekend. A lively experiment is generously underwritten by. For more than 30 years, A Lively Experiment has provided insight and analysis of important political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm John Hazen White, Jr., and I'm proud to support this great program and Rhode Island PBS.